This episode is sponsored by Varma. Varma is the largest pension insurance company in Finland. With over 40 billion euros of investments, Varma is also the largest private investor in Finland. Varma's strategic goals include promoting their client company's growth and supporting entrepreneurship. I spoke with Juho Kettunen, director of key clients at Varma, about the topics of this episode. He said that with their exceptionally broad perspective on the Finnish business landscape, it's clear that the amount of uncertainty companies face keeps increasing year by year. The pace of change certainly calls for organizational structures that are not as rigid as they used to be. Varma helps their clients by first listening to them. When they understand the business, they can help employees be productive and stay productive. As Juho Kettunen put it, adaptability is the result of a focus on people. To get acquainted with the ways in which Varma can help your business grow and become more adaptive, go to varma.fi. Welcome back to the final episode of the third season of Boss Level Podcast. As suitable for the season finale, I have a very special guest. I'm interviewing retired four-star general Stan McChrystal. Former U.S. Defense Secretary Robert Gates described McChrystal as perhaps the finest warrior and leader of men in combat. McChrystal took command of an elite military organization joined Special Operations Task Force and transformed it from a rigid hierarchy to a network of autonomous teams. The teams were encouraged to act autonomously as long as their actions served the purpose and were not immoral or illegal. For such a high level of autonomy to function, the organization had to start sharing data extensively in order to create a shared consciousness. The story of the transformation is laid out in the book Team of Teams. And what I especially love about the story is that it basically takes away all the excuses. If a military bureaucracy can transform itself into an agile network of teams, so can any business organization, no matter how large or traditional. Share this episode with forward-thinking leaders so we can nudge the world towards a better understanding of complexity and its requirements on leadership and organizations. I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's delve into the to the book Team of Teams, which I, I absolutely love the book. And in the book, you describe how you transformed a traditional, rigid, bureaucratic military organization into a network of teams. So what made you realize that the organization needed to reconfigure itself? It's a great question. Well, I think the most obvious thing is we were losing. We were a purpose-built organization built in the uh, aftermath of the failure of the Iran rescue mission in 1980. And American Special Operating Forces reconfigured part of our force to create a counterterrorist capability. And they put the most correctly focused elements, counter-terrorist forces together into this dream team construct. And in 1981, that organization, Task Force, was launched and it became this extraordinary capability that it is today. I took it in 2003, I took command of it. I'd grown up in it, but I took command of it in 2003 in Iraq in the fall. And despite how good we were at what we did and we were performing superbly, the outcome 
was not right, i.e. the situation in Iraq was getting worse and worse. And so on the one hand, we had every reason not to change because we're doing that which we'd been designed for, doing it well. But on the other hand, yeah. if it's not working, then you gotta gotta change. So there was internal hesitation in the force to change. And I'll be honest, internal hesitation in me to change. Because if you're really good at something, to depart from that can be frightening. But because we're loose and we had a, certainly a, a big reason to, so we started this move to something different without a plan, without a blueprint for what that would be. We just knew that we had to change the way we operated. And in the book, you actually talk a lot about complexity theory and systems thinking. So how does a military, military leader such as yourself get acquainted with these topics? Well, in my case, it was up close and personal. I had done some management leadership training, so I had a very uh, rudimentary understanding. But really, I was part of a complicated system, the United States military. It's sort of, uh, they once described the Navy as an organization designed by geniuses to be run by idiots. <laughs> But the idea is you're cogs in a machine that is brilliantly created to, to produce a predictable outcome. And I was part of that. And then we got into this new environment, which I wouldn't have said complex at the time. I wouldn't have put that moniker on it. But that's exactly what it was. Instead of being a complicated enemy, a predictable foe of a certain size that does certain things, suddenly we had this completely different environment with a different enemy that was operating in different ways. They were much more fluid. They were network-based. They were constantly adapting. And that made them in, a, in that environment very, very effective very lethal and very fast. So the first thing we did was we ran smack dab into this thing. We are very good at what we do, but we can't beat it because they're different. It was as though we were a football team trying to play basketball. And so when we realized that the fundamental challenge was not that our enemy was better than we were or that they were 10 feet tall, but that they were leveraging this different environment very adeptly, then... You have the challenge. You're not just going to work harder and beat them. You're going to have to adapt to this environment. When you do that, then you have the opportunity to leverage your other strengths. So which happened first? Was it like that you intuitively started moving in that direction and then later found, found the words, how to explain it from complexity theory and systems thinking? Or did you learn about them first and then start applying them in the military? No, that's a great question. It was the, it was the former We didn't have any of this theory in mind. All we did was we were losing and we realized it was different. So we intuitively and iteratively started changing. And as I described to people, I didn't have a blueprint for the change. I didn't have a correct path to it. I just said the status quo is unacceptable because we're losing. So we're going to change. As we started to change to adapt to this and we started to understand both our enemy and the environment better, we, we began to change more and more rapidly. At a certain point, that became self-reinforcing as we started to see the benefits. Then only after the fact, actually after I left command, did I start studying this along with some friends and suddenly realized that we had actually executed with intuition a lot of what the theorists had figured out. I sort of wish I'd studied it before, <laughs> but I actually think I'm more passionate about it now because I know it works because we experienced it. Yes, yes. So how did you concretely start the transformation? When, when, once you figured out that, okay, we need to change and we need to start adapting, how, what, what did you actually start doing? 
The first thing we had to do was make the case across the organization that the status quo was not working. That was in one way self-evident by the data around us, but on the other way, there was still this sense that if we just do what we're doing a little better, it'll work. So it took some time to make that case, and part of that was letting the situation speak for itself, but also the other part was creating this daily conversation across the command. Because before that, our different parts, our different organizations, which were very cohesive but insular, almost tribal, they lived in their worlds, and we were geographically spread across the region. So people were not only from their cultural small team, they were also seeing their small part of the battlefield, be it uh, Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever. And so we had to knit that together so people saw a bigger picture. And when they saw the bigger hole, they saw the problem in a wider sense, and they saw our effort. Then the logic of making changes started to make a lot more sense. So we, we made that case, and we started to communicate very, very aggressively. And there was some resistance in the command of that initially because it took time, it took effort, it took money to invest in bandwidth. We believed very much in video teleconferencing because there's a much higher level of communication when you see the person. So we, we started investing in those things to get it moving and then as people started to pass lessons learned, to share context and to be more effective, then at a certain point, it picks up its own momentum. And I think one of the practices that you implemented was a 90-minute daily teleconference with 7,500 people present in, the, in that teleconference. And I think most people dread teleconferences with more than two people. So how did you specifically run that 90-minute meeting? Most people want small meetings so they can make quick decisions. But this comp teleconference was not about decisions. This was about sharing context. So what we did with, with all these different locations, about 76 locations were in it. We had an agenda that was disciplined and we covered certain items of information every day. And then certain other reports only were done twice a week or once a week, depending upon their, their importance. And so there would be this disciplined agenda, but it wouldn't be a briefing it would be of each functional area, intelligence from here or, or the operations last night, it would be about 90 seconds of explaining the headlines of what happened and then about two and a half minutes across the command of the context. What did that mean? How does that fit in? What did we learn? And there'd be questions across. So why did that happen? What did you make of it? And that was the richness of it because actually a video teleconference is not an efficient way to pass data. You can pass data by email or, or websites much more efficiently, but it's a great way to do two things. One, to give that contextual wisdom and also to build relationships because if you describe something to me over a video teleconference and I demonstrably react to that, not only we pass an understanding, we're also building a relationship, a level of empathy, and that turned out to be very powerful. So was one of the things that you were hoping that would happen was that after that 90 minutes of, of teleconferencing, some people would connect privately afterwards and talk more about the details? Well, that's exactly right. First is the remaining 22 and a half hours of the day, we had opened up conduits of information that flowed. So people talked laterally and, and diagonally across the organization. But even during the video teleconference, we ran 15 chat rooms. So if you're in it and you're one of 7,500 people and not everybody can obviously speak, you can, in the moment, reach out to somebody and say, I need more information on this. Can I see you after this? By can typing it or 
by typing it on a keyboard or typing on a keyboard because everybody's connected as they're on this thing. So in real time, they're, uh, they're chatting to other people. So we're having this conversation on the one level, and then we're having 15 chat rooms, having parallel conversations related to it. That's interesting. That's awesome. Um, Going going back to the uh, the change and how you started that, I think one of the misconceptions that business people have about military is that military leadership is easy since you can just order people around. But I don't think that's exactly the case with the kind of organizations that you've been involved with. So what were your ways of dealing with people who weren't yet on board with the change? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Particularly in a place like special operations where people are older, more mature, and in a room of a thousand people, you have a thousand strong opinions, all of which are right. Um, the, the first thing you've got to do is understand it's not directive. It's you have to influence people. And part of influencing people is to listen to them. There's an awful lot of respect involved of allowing that dialogue to occur because somebody might not get it their way, but if they get a chance to table their view and to, to request a it be considered, it changes their buy-in to it overall. So we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that everybody got enough information and got enough inputs to feel as though they'd been represented and then to execute as as we decide. Okay. And so basically one of the things that you started doing very heavily was the uh, like sharing sharing data. And corporations can be very secretive about data and the military probably even more so. So um, you advocate strongly for sharing data extensively between different parts of the organization. Why do you think that sharing data is so crucial? Well, I think there are a couple levels. One is information and, and data as, you, as we, uh, we aggregate it is wisdom. It, at the, it is pieces of information that overall start to fill a picture up. If you just give people pieces of information, if, if you only share with me what you think I know, there's a certain amount of arrogance on that because it assumes you know what I need to know. And in reality, unless you're in my shoes, in my spot, you really don't have that appreciation. So we learned to share as much as we could because this fallacy of, you know, you need only those who need to know get it. You don't know who needs to know. So that's the first part. The second part is the idea of secrecy. Everything's secret. And you, you have to challenge that uh, presumption. First off, why is something secret? A lot of the information we shared was about the enemy. And I used to joke with the command. I said, the enemy knows about themselves. So if they find out information <laughs> on themselves, I'm not too worried about it. Also, much of the sensitivity of information is temporal in nature. 48 hours later. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Mm. And so what we did was we pushed it very aggressively. Now, I don't want to say anybody should be cavalier about it. There are pieces of information that shouldn't be shared. There are pieces of information that shouldn't be shared now. And then if you do provide information across an organization, it's got a vertical breadth to it, more senior and more junior, you have to give context. Because if you just give raw information without context with people who, who don't have the broader picture, it's really hard to understand and it can sometimes be damaging. So we spend an awful lot of time trying to contextualize things. Yeah. And I think one of the things that corporations fear with this is that if you share data and also you've empowered the organization to actually do things based on that data, then you, you, you don't have any control. You don't know what's going to happen as a result. And that's right. But I would argue that control is 
a fallacy now. You think you've got control if you're at the top, but the reality is you don't know what's happening down low, nor can you respond nearly as fast as the environment's changing. So you've got to give up a measure of control, which means you've got to inform and educate people closer to the point of action, and then you've got to trust them. Sure. But then again, I mean, the risks of information sharing are not only hypothetical, as we've seen with the leaks by Chelsea and Manning and Edward Snowden. So how can you still advocate for sharing? Well, I would argue that both Manning and Snowden did their thing and the sky didn't fall in. And yet, if you go back to the 9-11 case in the United States, all of the information needed to stop that attack existed inside the United States government. And so it wasn't a case of getting more information. It was a case of connecting the dots. And so I would argue that the cure in the case of information control is worse than the disease. So in reality, there will be another Manning. There will be another Snowden. There will be another case where information flows, probably more than ever before because of the digital nature. But the reality is, if you're sharing a lot of information, you become resilient. There's this, you're not nearly as brittle. And so I think it, it's a much stronger way to go. How have the changes that you've made taken hold in the military in the wider scale and longer term? So do you think that the results that you've done are still in there? And are they like going across the organization in a, in a bigger scale? Well, in parts of the military and special operations, they are there. They're sort of in the DNA now. And it's not just within the military because we, we now talk interagency. If you talk military effort, you're really talking the intelligence community and the State Department and Treasury. All of them in the, in the world of counterterrorism are sort of equal players. So you have to have the same interoperability, which is different cultures. It's different structures. It's all, so you got to break across those. There have been good moves there, but, but I would caution there's also this natural tendency as soon as the, the near-term requirement is over to retreat to your corners. Exactly. Almost like muscle <laughs> memory. Or, or, and so I describe it as magnets in opposition. They have to be held together to get the kind of reaction you need, which takes real effort. This kind of sharing is not the natural state of things. If you let it go, this is not where objects remain. Like a nuclear reaction, you have to keep it together but control it. Yeah, I think that's interesting because in, in many ways you can also say that this whole approach to things was created by Taylor and his work. I, I think before like we had professionals who knew everything about their craft, all the different parts that were related to that. And then Taylor and Adam Smith came along and they divided it into into smaller parts and, and so on. And it's kind of it's kind of weird that it has become so embedded in the DNA that now if we if we're not actively trying to get people to work together, then it kind of regresses back to the Taylor-esque models. And it's interesting because if you talk about Adam Smith or, or Taylor, we want to demonize them now. In reality, I think if you pull either of them in today's world, both of them were interested in outcome. And in the Industrial Revolution, efficiency gave a great outcome. And I would argue that Frederick Winslow Taylor would probably look at that thing. He would do reductionism and then he would say, wait a minute. It doesn't work anymore. This doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. It's not the yeah. most effective exactly. thing. Yeah. And we'll probably come to this kind of conclusion. Yeah, I think that's very true, that it's always context-specific and they created a system that worked for their time and they would probably change it for now. Yeah, I totally agree. You're currently helping organizations through the McChrystal Group. So how well can the lessons you've learned about change management in the military be applied in the, in the business context? Yeah, first you start with this... Uh, 
idea that the military is very different from civilian organizations or commercial firms. And it's, in my experience, it's absolutely not. You take the uniforms off one and, and they're absolutely the same because it's people and it's trying to get things done. And they've all are complicated organizations created to be efficient. So what we found is first, if you're going to change an organization, you've got to change senior leader behaviors. You've got to have the senior leaders walk the walk and, and actually do what they say. You've got to drive it. You've also got to change some of your processes in an organization and what that means is how information shared, how often is it shared, who gets it. Um, if you don't change some processes, no matter how much you talk about being more nimble or more adaptable, it doesn't work. And that's why sometimes you pull people out of a company and you send them off to leadership training. They get all jazzed up and they come back to the organization and they're, they're fired up to change it. And then over the course of the next few weeks, they're frustrated because the organization hasn't changed. And so what we found is the senior leaders have got to lead and underwrite this. You've got to change some processes to enable this, to make it at first okay, and then make it expected. And then you've got to change people in the organization. And it's everything from how decisions are made to how risk is underwritten to how uh, we decide how many people take part in a decision and that sort of thing. So you're changing a fair number of things to make the process uh, possible. I mean, it's as simple as things like incentives. If you say, okay, I'm really trying to incentivize collaborative behavior, but then your incentive system is all individually based, saying what you kill, exactly. you eat, you're not going to change behavior. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, I think it's kind of crazy how the, uh, like, it's so clear. I think most people who've worked in corporations see how the incentive system does exactly that. It drives you to focus on your individual goals and not on the team goals. And still, when you talk to business leaders, they're like, yeah, we need to have goals. We need to have individual goals because how else will people perform well? And it's crazy. <laughs> In fact, there's a lot of work being done, but it's still very early on determining what actually makes teams work. What are the norms that work? How do you put talent together to do that? How do you incentivize that vice, the old individual? And it's not just bonuses. It can be long-term promotions and things like that. So there's, I think there's an awful lot of room for people to understand the dynamics of these teams, some of which last a very short period of time. They're, they're very focused on a single thing, but they can be far more effective. I think nowadays where we build organizations that have a certain purpose and we try to recruit people who uh, who fit that purpose, who actually also want to want to implement that. And that's very different from from trying to uh, hire anyone and then incentivizing them to do what we want them to do. Well, that's exactly right. If you think about it, purpose is one of the greatest motivators ever. If you can keep the purpose alive, if you say one thing, this is our purpose but your incentives, your actions and all are counter to that. Exactly. What you've really done is create cynicism. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you also figured out was that the, uh, the you didn't necessarily have that much like individ, individual incentives in the, in the military, but you did have team incentives. But one of the things that you also realized later on was that uh, even if the teams locally optimize, you're still not going to get a good result because you need the whole, like the big picture to happen. That's right. In JSOC... We didn't have a lot of individual incentives in the culture, but we had small team incentives. And that's where 90% of people's identity lay, their loyalty lay, and their incentives lay because they want their small team to be the most effective, most successful, et cetera. 
But that was counter to this team of teams approach because none of our small teams could affect the battle enough by themselves. We had to knit them together. And that was counter to our previous experiences. In the previous two decades, a small team would get a mission if they do it, great, and then we move on. This was the first time because of the network nation uh, nature of the enemy, we had to knit it together into one single effort. And that required those organizations to make a pretty significant culture shift away from my small team to the outcome for the big team. So now through your consulting practice, how do you talk about incentives to corporations? Pretty much the same way. And, and it's very, very complex because you've got the traditional individual incentives, often their financial metrics or something like that. Now what we try to do is talk about how well did the team actually produce the outcome you want? And if you're on that team or the leader of that team, that, that's how much did you contribute to that? The problem is getting the right metrics is harder than it seems. If you want a team to do something or if you want to measure an individual's contribution to that team, it's often indirect and it takes a fair amount of thought because we want to go straight down to the financial. But a lot of what teams do is indirect. What does human resources do or what does uh, research and development do that really connects to the bottom line? It's definitely a bank shot at best, but you got to figure it out. I'm starting to be of the opinion that Numeric targets, whatever way you set them, it's always going to lead to local optimization. It's really dangerous because whenever you put numeric targets, you are going to affect behavior. I don't care what it is. If you say, I want you to walk up the stairs in 20 seconds every morning, if you measure that, people are going to change exactly. their behavior. Exactly. Yeah, and, and if we're talking about a complex world, You being able to say that these are the numeric targets that we want to focus on, that's kind of like you're not getting the, the point about complexity. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's, it's just so hard to do. And that's why I'm very modest about an organization's ability to do that effectively. You can set, and we've seen this in organizations, you can set what seem to be very logical, rational, numerical targets, and then they lose. Yes. You go, wait a minute, we did all these things, but we lost. Obviously, it's just really hard to connect those two. What also results from that is that you start always talking about, did we, did we like reach our goals? Did we get to our targets? When you should also always be having discussions on whether we set the right targets. Are we doing the right things? So you're kind of creating structures that actually focus on you doing the same thing again, but maybe slightly better. And it kind of de-incentivizes you from having the big discussions about the targets that you actually want to have. It's, well, that's right. And of course, sometimes you can have irrational targets, like I, a story a friend of mine told me about a big insurance company. They lost a bunch of money selling a certain kind of policy because they actually lost money on each policy. So they went to the head of sales and they said, now, wait a minute, you know, you sold all these policies and we lost all this money. And the guy goes, yeah. And they go, well, why'd you do that? He says, you don't pay me for us making money. You pay me for selling policies. So we did. Yeah. Pretty much everyone, uh, everyone who's worked in a corporation for, for a while has a story exactly like that. And they know that that happens. Still, they feel that uh, incentives are a great way to manage companies and run companies. Well, in the military, <laughs> it gets as, you know, as uh, negative as body counts. If I kill enough of the enemy, I win. That's not the truth in war. And yet, if you, even if you informally set that kind of standard, people will do things that are actually counterproductive. 
Yeah, yeah. So go, going back to uh, to the uh, purpose of an organization, and you've said that in the military, the uh, the purpose is fairly given. You know what the purpose of the organization is. So through your through your work with the McChrystal Group, have you found it uh, necessary that with the organizations that you work with, you first need to start by clarifying their purpose? I think uh, purpose in the business context tends to run the gamut from change the world to to make a lot of money. And so I think the purpose is important, but I don't think it drives organizations as much as we think it does or they, they want to think it does. I think the strategy does. Now, what I would say about the strategy, though, is the strategy is not normally the hard part. You can develop a pretty rational strategy But getting everybody aligned on that strategy, it's almost like getting everybody aligned on the purpose, what are we really trying to do, is, is really hard. Because if you have a very general purpose or strategy statement, it's open to interpretation by people at every level from their perspective, all with good intentions. And so if somebody says, we're going to make the world a better place, People in R&D, human resources, and all may, may view not only what a better place looks like, but also how to get there. And so I think the hard part comes when you get this general idea of what you're trying to do, a general strategy on getting there. It's aligning people on, okay, what does that mean? We found it in the war on terror that there would be meetings at the national level, National Security Council and whatnot that says we want to defeat al-Qaeda or whatever each of the organization leaders would sit in that room and nod with absolutely pure intent. But when they go back to their organizations, the definition of that varied dramatically. And therefore, that the actions they take in support of their definition could be an actual opposition. And so it's that alignment that I think is really the key point. Uh, do you have concrete practice on how to reach that alignment? Absolutely. Uh, one, you've got to have the discussion and conversation on the big picture enough so that it starts to clarify for people. You can't let people walk in out of the room saying, we're going to make the world a better place until somebody says, wait a minute, what does that better place look like? What's the time horizon? So that conversation teases that out. And then as you start to say, okay, everybody, we're not in Taylor reductionism, but everybody does have a role. We're going to start to say, what is it? What is everybody's contributing part of this? And then how do they connect laterally? Because although I may be said, I'm going to do my human resources part, there's an independency because I am hiring people for other parts of the organization. I'm working all the compliance programs. The interdependencies become very, very important to understand. This is a, this is a uh, important process organizations have to go through that, that really builds not only the, their operating plan, but also help shape the culture of the organization as they go forward. One of the things that you need to think about with strategy when you're in the complex domain is that uh, you might not be able to see it upfront or you won't be able to see what the right strategy is going to be upfront. So one of the key things there is to, well, you talk a lot about empowering people. And, and I think that it's also important to empower them to be a part of uh, your process for creating the strategy so that the strategy is actually uh It's, it's not top-down. What actually happens is that the people who do the actual work, they do small experiments all the time. And then the learning from those experiments uh, end up creating our strategy. Does that make any sense to you? That makes absolute sense because they inform you what's possible yes. and what's not possible. And then you talk about, I, we mentioned um, 
Horatio Nelson's strategy at the Battle of Trafalgar in the book, basically his, his plan in the battle was to come into the enemy, break the enemy's line, and then just have a disorganized fight. And you say, well, why would a, an admiral want a disorganized fight? Because in a decentralized fight, his crews were better, and he knew that then the initiative and proficiency of his team would win. In a complex environment, I argue that's essentially what you're doing. Your strategy is to try to create the environment in which hopefully your smaller elements are prepared, have the innovation, have the flexibility and the authority to constantly adapt and win. Yeah, and I think that's one of the one of the problems that we have with hierarchical companies that it's just like even if we're able to empower people to uh do the experiments, the the learning or the information that we gain from those experiments doesn't doesn't like go up the ladder of uh, within the corporation and nothing is actually learned. The the strategy doesn't change even if we actually learn something from the experiments. Or it doesn't go laterally as well. That's exactly right. The organization's got to be this constant learning thing not from the great idea from the top, but from the organism. It's like your your right hand touches a stove and it's hot. Your whole body better figure that out or somebody else is going to, another part will touch the stove. And you got to create that environment to do that. And the challenge of that is it happens so fast now. It's not that people are evil and don't want to do it, but taking the time to communicate things you've learned across your organization, taking the time and having the the processes and structure in place for that information to reach other parts of it and then for them to be able to to take it and internalize it. And then the flexibility to, to execute within that new environment takes an awful lot of flexibility. Okay, that's, that's really good. I still want to talk a little uh, about Uh, sharing information within companies and kind of trying to nail down some concrete tips and some kind of ideas that organizations could take away from this. So what kind of information do you urge that companies should start sharing more within the organization? Um, one of the things we worry about is information overload. So you say if you share everything exactly. all the time, people can't digest it. What, what I recommend and what we did was we had a four-level tiering of information. And level one was information that I equated to headlines in the newspaper. And that was general contextual understanding that I wanted the entire organization to know. And we pushed that information. So if you're in the organization, you're going to get that information put in front of you. So you're going to know it. Level two is information that is more specific to certain subject areas. Most people don't need to go into all of those, but the people dealing with that do. But everybody knows this big picture, which would be like what the puzzle is going to look like when we put it together. Then the people for level two information can pull what they need. They then know what they need. Levels three and four are increasing detail. So the key thing is not trying to pretend that everybody can digest all the information, but they have to get a certain appreciation and get it regularly so that they know what to look for. Because there's no point in having all the information in the world available to you if you don't know that you need it and you don't know where to look. Yeah. Uh, what's a single practice that most organizations would benefit from if they just started doing it? Um, well, the first would be information shares we talked about. But the next thing I would say is decision space. And that is a lot of times people don't know what decisions they're actually allowed to make or expected to make. So I think it's a great practice for an organization starting at the top to identify those decisions which 
only the senior leaders will make, like the CEO. And that should be a very short list. It shouldn't be, I will decide senior leader hires this and then everything else of importance. And, and the, the beauty of that is the theory is the CEO will make those decisions, but by implication, every other decision is going to be made below them. And if you do that with rigor at each level, suddenly what you'll find is that the lower levels, a whole bunch of decisions, what they've assumed somebody above them had reserved, not, and they're now allowed to do that because you can spend an awful lot of time trying to communicate to people more junior in the organization what they're actually allowed to do. And you say, well, why don't they take more initiative? Well, maybe they don't know that they really have that freedom. That's great advice. One of the things that I also read somewhere that you said was that by get, starting to get rid of the limitations that, that are in the organization, that that's a great way to empower people. And, and I, what I actually sp specifically liked about that was that you said that that gets rid of excuses, that you can't say that there was a process that prevented me from doing this properly. But if there's fewer processes, then there's fewer excuses within the organization. That's exactly right. If you, if you limit those, and, and with our organization, I said, if it's not illegal or immoral, then you have the authority to do it. Uh, and that's pretty wide. And I, they'd say, now I don't want a lot of excuses. Uh, it's harder with more junior, inexperienced organizations. You typically may have to give a few more guideposts. But the more you give, as you described, there are excuses for why I couldn't do it. And what I tried to do is take away as many as I could and almost challenge people. What do you feel have been the moments when you were most afraid? It's interesting. Uh, sometimes people say they expect it to be physical fear. You're in a case where somebody might do harm to you or uh, you're just the unknown. For me, it was always fear of failure, of letting the people that I was leading down. And sometimes could be as simple as when you're a junior officer and you're leading people and you're doing the land navigation. And the worst thing in the world is not to get lost. The worst thing in the world is in front of your people to be proven incompetent. Uh, as I got more senior, really that the tension level rises with that because you're at times when you know you have to represent them or lead them or make tough decisions. And you're not really worried about the direct outcome of yourself, but you're worried about having been given great responsibility and proving unequal to it. And that could cause in me an awful lot of fear. I think a lot of organizations nowadays talk about the need for creativity. And if you want to have creativity within your organization, you need to have a, an, an environment where you can actually make mistakes. How does that, that apply to a military context? That's a great question, because in every organization, it's popular to say that we, we underwrite mistakes, we encourage people to make mistakes. But then when companies lose money or military forces lose battles or you lose lives, then people suddenly say, well, we can't afford to take that kind of risk in this environment. We can't underwrite your learning process. But in reality, you have to. In reality, you've got to create an environment where prudent risk-taking is encouraged. That does not mean you're going to underwrite people who are unprepared or underwrite people that just don't give enough serious focus on it or that you're going to underwrite people who are incompetent, just incapable of performing at that level. But you've got to encourage people not to worry about their, I call it batting average. They don't have to be right every time they do something. 
It's the cumulative effect you're looking for. And sometimes it's the failures that you learn uh, and make you better in the long run. So how about looking in the, into the future? You've, you've, uh, you've already done a huge career in the military. Now you've, uh, you've been running your own business for quite a while. Uh, what are you most afraid of when you look into the future? I think it's the same thing. In, in my own business, I'm most afraid of letting the team down. We've tried to create an organization that not only makes a contribution in our sector, but also creates an environment where people join it and they get their needs met. Part of it's financial, but much more of it is feeling like it's part of something they, they respect and feel good about. But that's hard to do. And every organization gets pulled and pushed by stresses. And so trying to create that ecosystem and then manage it carefully so that people are where they want to be and they feel good about it and where you think you let them down. And I think every day I do something about our business. I think, well, it's not what it ought to be. And you feel guilty, um, but you just work harder. <laughs> uh, and what are you hoping to achieve in the big picture with the, with the new company? Well, you know, I'm not going to say change the world because everybody says, okay, <laughs> we're going to do this and change the world. What I would like to do with our organization is create a group of people that help other organizations become more adaptable, but also be thought leaders so that even if we're not directly responsible for an organization changing, if indirectly we help companies make the move from this complicated environment to complexity, that would be pretty good. And then on a much more seeming modest level, as I mentioned, I want to create an environment where somebody comes at this point in their life and they really find it fulfilling. And if they leave McChrystal Group at some point, as everybody will, do they feel really good about it? And are they proud about having been there? Do they, do they brag about it to people? That would be good in my view. How about personally? Uh, how, what makes you happy? It's when I think that I've uh, let the people around me be more than they could otherwise be. I very much like to pull teams together. I like to assemble pieces of uh, talent, different personalities, and I like to watch them operate. And so I get a great sense of almost being an orchestra leader in that way. I don't play an instrument well. I don't write the music. I'm not the driving force, but if I can create that ecosystem then I take great satisfaction from that. That's great. Thanks a lot for your time. Oh, you're kind. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And a huge thank you to Reactor for making this possible. I have to admit, I was pretty nervous throughout the interview, but I'm very happy with the way it turned out. Fortunately for me, podcasts are not live interviews. If they were, there'd be a lot more cringe-worthy moments like, for example, this one. Actually, I actually have one more question about the, the data, data sharing. And, and uh, um, actually, I just, I just lost it, but it'll come back to me. I'll, sure. I'll come back to it. Um, the podcast is now going to be on a break for about a month or two. We have a baby on the way, and it's already overdue. I'll get back to the podcast once we get things rolling with the newcomer. Subscribe to the feed or join the mailing list to make sure you don't miss future episodes. If you enjoyed the episodes in this season, please go give the podcast a five-star review on iTunes. While waiting for the upcoming season, you might want to go back and re-listen to some of the previous episodes. 
The episode with Dave Snowden on complexity theory is a great episode if you want to go deeper into the topics of this episode. If you want to learn about an organization with 10,000 employees, but no managers, listen to my interview with Joost de Bloch, the CEO of home care company Bootsock. There's plenty of other amazing episodes available. Go check them out. All the links I mentioned are in the show notes. If you're interested in sponsoring the next season, you can reach me at sami at bosslevelpodcast.com. That's S-A-M-I at bosslevelpodcast.com. Any feedback is also, of course, always welcome. Thank you for listening to the Boss Level Podcast. I'm your host, Sami Hongkoren. Talk to you in a month or two. Bye.